AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, we don't need no education. Yes, we do. We just used a double negative. I'm Jonathan Strickland. <laughs> I'm Lauren Volkelbaum. I'm Joe McCormick. That was a good one, actually. That was. Thank you. Yeah, I once like once in a while I pick one that's actually semi-appropriate for the podcast. Today we're going to talk... Semi-appropriate at all? For the podcast. For Anyway, <laughs> so today we're going to talk about science fiction and education, the future of what education might be. Uh, and uh, the reason for this is because obviously we just did a video about what the future of education is all about. And uh, if you look to science fiction, there's some interesting concepts of what we could see as part of our educational uh, uh, experience in the future. Uh, the one that we often think of, at least here in the office, because uh, it made such a big splash when it first debuted, is The Matrix, right? 
Right. So in the concept of the Matrix, uh, you've got characters who have these these computer jacks that are built into them. Huge hole in the back of your head. Right, mm-hmm. right, right at the top of your spine, base of your skull. And uh, you can plug in what looks to be a an inconveniently large plug <laughs> <laughs> into the back of your skull. And then uh, that allows you to do a couple of things. One, it allows you to enter the matrix, this this uh, virtual environment. To wh- plug into the, to, to the program. Right? Yeah. See, it's so far in the future. I don't understand why they don't have wireless access to the matrix. Yeah. Well, I mean, clearly. Because it looks cooler. Yeah. I don't understand why they're using humans as opposed to cows. Whoa. As now, batteries. hold on. I thought about it. Now, if you remember in the movie, they can kill you just by unplugging you while you're plugged in. Now, if you had wireless access and then suddenly you had interference in the signal, I guess that would kill you. What's interfering, though? It's go. just them. I don't know. Okay, Suddenly so somebody moves a big lead sheet between you and the and the router and then you die. Right, right. Okay, you know what? We're getting far away from what I'm trying to get at at this conversation already and we haven't even gotten into it. The point being that in the context of the Matrix, uh, while you get plugged into this virtual environment, one of the other things that can happen is that uh, using this connection to computers – uh, this physical connection between the person and the computer, you can download information from a computer or have a computer upload information into you and then use that information in a meaningful way within the context of the matrix. Uh, like piloting a ship or kung fu. Yes, I know kung fu. Right. Uh, uh, or becoming an expert uh, at, at weapon systems, all this sort of stuff. And uh, at least within the context of the Matrix, as far as I could tell – now, granted, I, I have to – in full disclosure, I only watched the first film and then I tried to get through the second film – Twice. What second film? Yeah, that's pretty much how I am. Wouldn't it be nice if they made sequels? Yeah. At any rate, uh, the point being that that it seemed to me that the knowledge you gained through that computer link up into your brain really was only um, uh, something you could put to use within the Matrix itself, right? Oh, like, right. For, for most human beings, uh, the way that it worked in the films was that uh, you – most people could could learn this thing that they would know within the confines of the Matrix computer program. And then once you got back into reality, um, which was a sucky place to be, uh, you wouldn't know it anymore. Right. Except, and, except they would occasionally throw raves. That was the, that was the <laughs> one part that wasn't too sucky. That's actually not all that implausible when you think about it, because uh, apart from the sort of like the instantaneous downloading part uh, – it's possible to learn a virtual skill that has no correlation in, in the real world. Like you can be the best shot in the world at Halo, but that doesn't mean you can actually do combat and operate an assault rifle in real life. Well, sure. I mean, it's two different sets of skills in that case. It's just that it, it one set is mimicking something that happens in our real space. Right. But it's not using the exact same uh, approach. There there are correlations, though. I mean, for example, surgeons use video games these days to help train themselves to be better surgeons. So, uh, soldiers using, use them, too. Using that yeah. kind of a, a fine eye-hand coordination yeah. training mm-hmm. is very helpful. I guess what would be crucial in designing those kind of systems is making them as map as closely to real life as possible. Sure. Well, that, that and to make whatever the uh, whatever your goal is something that actually helps you refine whatever your skill set is. If you're talking about hand-eye coordination, then it has to have lots of stuff that you can react to quickly and respond to in a a way that makes sense within the context of the game. Now, the question is, could we get to a point where we could get that kind of skill uh, 
through a connection, direct connection to a computer. Automatic learning, it's called. Right, right. This this concept of just beaming that information from a digital uh, source into our brains and have it translate in a meaningful way. And to really understand how difficult this would be, we have to kind of look at how we learn and how we retain information uh, within our own brains. Yeah, because... In The Matrix, there's this – it's just kind of glossed over. There's some easy transition between digital and, and you know, the wet stuff in your head. Right. They've got a hole. You just plug the thing in and that that's Bam. taken care yeah. of. Mm-hmm. But in the real world, I have to imagine that our brains don't use binary data. No, they do know. not. Yeah, no, our brains are not they, – they don't – this is one of those things I think some futurists have trouble with. In that I think some futurists believe that the human brain and computers share way more in common than they actually do. Now, there are commonalities. I mean, the, the computer is sort of our attempt to create a machine that can, in at least some contexts, reason its way through things. It has to have a very specific set of rules that it has to follow in order to do that. But, um, you know, it's kind of trying to mimic what we do when we're thinking about stuff using rules that we have created. But when you get down to the actual biology of the brain, it is really complex. So complex, in fact, that we still don't fully understand how it works. We've got some theories, or maybe we should say some hypotheses, about what is going on, but we're still but learning. most of it is still a mystery to us. Yeah, yeah. We we can, even with the sophisticated tools and the uh, the information that we have available to us today, we still don't fully understand the process. But I, let me talk a little bit about what we think is going on. Uh, and of course, some of this we may find out later on is not completely correct or that it's it's right, but it's missing some key component. That's, you know, that's part of the, the joy of discovering stuff, really. It's something that I find exciting about all areas of science. So um, really, there's three steps in the way that we store information. There's uh, or uh, the way we deal with information in our brains. There's encoding, there's storage and there's retrieval. Now, so far, that sounds a lot like computers. Sure. You, know, you encode the information, you store it, and then you can retrieve it whenever you need to. Um, there are three different types, basic types of memory. There's sensory memory. This is something that lasts maybe two seconds at most. This is what uh, your brain is doing to to help you interpret the information that you're bringing in through your senses. Is it sort of what we describe as the moment-to-moment experience of consciousness? Um, it's it's m- almost like when you first feel that blast of cold air and you think of it as cold, it's really the memory of cold that you're associating. It's kind yeah. of – you get a little metaphysical when because you start there, talking about it. Is there such a thing as the present, you know? Right, yeah, right. Yeah, that whole idea. Is there idea. such a thing as cold and whether or not – yeah, just, just based on, you know, the, the idea that my green is different than your green because we both experience the color differently. Yeah, uh, and then there's the lady who can experience millions of colors. You guys read about her, right? Yeah. No. Do you, you haven't? This this is a sidebar, but it is an exciting thing. Uh, some scientists have uh, have identified a woman. I, I want to say she's a doctor in the UK who they've identified as as being able to perceive something like 100 million different shades of color. So she's got super sensory ability when it comes to color differentiation. She cannot see outside the visible range. It's not like she suddenly has the ability to see infrared or ultraviolet. 
but she can see incredibly subtle differences in color. Uh, the average person, it's more like one million shades. So she has 100 times the wow. sensitivity, which means that she must go bonkers when she's trying to pick out an outfit that matches. <laughs> because things that to us would look like they match perfectly, she'd say, well, no, that's white, that's but awful. that's totally not white. Yeah. That, that, that's not the right color at all. It's like the color equivalent of how people don't like 48 frames per second. It's just <laughs> there's too much could, detail. Could, could very well Every, like that. everything yeah. looks fake. The idea being that you could you could show someone like like me. I, I have terrible color recognition skills. I've, I've taken those courses, those 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 little uh, online tests. Those little tests where you're supposed to arrange the different shades from uh you know different color saturation you know, groups, the Roy yeah. G. Biv type mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, and I don't score very well of them at all. So you could show two colors to me that I might think look identical. And to her, she'd say, no, there's a world difference between them. All right. That's getting beyond the <laughs> scope of this conversation. But it's cool. So I had to talk about it. Uh, so you've got sensory memory that lasts two seconds max. Then you have short-term memory. This is more like something that lasts about 30 seconds. This is when you are trying to retain some information for just a brief moment, like someone's just told you their phone number and you're trying to put it into your phone or write it down if you still do that. Uh, and and so you just have to remember it long enough to be able to do that. And then you offload that need to remember. So your, your mind doesn't have to retain that information. Um, then you have long-term memory. Long-term memory, of course, is when – this is what we think of as when we say actual memories, like you're remembering something that happened to you in your past. That's a long-term memory. And uh, the interesting thing I found was that short-term memory, what happens is when you encounter this new information that you're trying to remember, what is going on is that you have you have neurons in your brain, right, the, the neural cells, and then you have connections, synapses between the neurons. Uh, you've got about one billion neurons in your average brain, all right? Each of those neurons has about 1,000 connections to other neurons. So that means that you have more than a trillion connections total in your brain. Wow. Now, a memory is actually the collection of connections between specific neurons in your brain at any given time. So if, Joe, you were to present to me some information that I was supposed to remember, uh, that first short-term memory would form a connection between certain neurons and that would represent that memory, that specific uh, 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 combination of connections. If I were to make that a long-term memory, it would actually be reconfiguring the those cells and those connections so that they were made a more permanent connection. And then every time I thought back on it, it would be essentially recreating what happened in that short-term memory. It would, it would, it would like fire an electrical signal in a certain pattern across yeah. so a group of If you could think of it of? in a weird analogy, let's say that we get a big group of people together to take a group photo and I tell everyone – Assume a silly pose and they all just do something spontaneous for a second and I take a picture. And then every single day for the next month, I get everyone together. I'm like, all right, assume the same silly pose that you did before. They are trying to recreate that moment that they had before. And the more it's recreated, the stronger that memory becomes. However, just like in that analogy, you can make mistakes, right? I, you know, I might think, oh yeah, I raised my left eyebrow really high in this goofy photo, but really I raised my right eyebrow. And you're not allowed to look at the photo for reference. So you're just trying to remember this. Uh, your memory can actually be faulty, which we see all the time, right? Memory is not a, a completely reliable source. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We think our memories are better than they are. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm certainly that way. It, 
98% of the conversations I have with my wife are disagreements with who said what when. And, uh, and clearly one of us has to be wrong. And I hope it's not always me, but it very well might be because my memory is, is not, it's, it's not infallible. So, uh, I wish it were. All right. So beyond that, we've got the, these, this information stored within these connections of neurons. And, uh, we don't, fully understand the mechanism that's going on here. We can get some, we've got some general ideas. We also can't measure how big a memory is, like how much is being stored there. So for example, with, with computers, you can see just by the file size, right? Sure. So, uh, and and it, it's based on, you know, a, a number of, of letters, a number of characters that can be specifically break broken down into a number of ones and zeros. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, if you're talking about like a, a text file, that's exactly true. So you look at that and you say, all right, well, that I know exactly how much space this is going to take in whatever recording medium I'm going to use, if it's going to be optical or magnetic or whatever. That's we can't say that with human memories. Uh, memories are very, very interesting and different things, and they change over time. Like I said, you might forget little details, which could actually change, quote unquote, the file size of your memory. Uh, and then uh, beyond that, you have things like association, where you can make associations between memories that don't have a direct connection with one another. So I might remember an instance I had with Lauren and an instance I had with Joe and draw connections between them, even though they were two completely separate uh, uh, moments, perhaps both in time and space. So I might have run into Joe, uh, you know, in downtown Atlanta, and it might have been something that happened with me and Lauren in the office. And yet I'm able to associate things, you know, because my that's one of the cool th- ways that our brains work. Now, beyond all that, there's been a recent study uh, that was uh, was published in Nature Neuroscience where. We discovered that rapid incoming data, stuff that's happening very, very quickly, little second long moments of information that you're being uh, confronted with, can be stored in our brains in single neurons. Like a single neuron can actually hold a memory, but it's like a second long. And they think, the scientists think that perhaps the reason for this is so that it gives your brain a little bit of, a a little extra time to incorporate this and start to make a a short-term memory out of this blast of short information, which is why if someone comes up and just gives you a quick list of, of facts or figures, you might be able to recall a few, but you're not able to recall all of them. And some of that is because those little neurons are able to hold on to enough information for it to become meaningful to you. Uh, and then there, uh, there was a team led by Professor John Gabrielli, and uh, he discovered that activity in a specific part of the brain called the parahippocampal cortex, or PHC, mm. predicts how well people will remember a visual scene. So if using fMRI machines to to take a look at someone, um, if the activity were low, they were more likely to remember a visual scene. So they could actually predict when people would remember more about the stuff they were going to be shown based upon their neural activity. Now, we can't do anything with that information yet other than know that this we can tell when someone is ready to learn, but we can't induce that. Right. So it's just one of those things where you take a look at the person's brain and you think now is when they would be most uh, most, most apt, most to... apt to remember something mm-hmm. visually. Mm-hmm. Now, beyond that, if uh, we're talking about the type parts of the brain that are involved in memory, again, we don't know for sure 
all the different mechanisms here, but we suspect that the hippocampus and frontal cortex work together to determine which sensory input is important to go into memory formation. So which bits of info are uh, are vital and which are extraneous. So it may discard that you could be you could be bringing in way more information than you remember uh, because your your parts of your brain are saying, well, that's not important. Let's not record that. So you could be forgetting very important details because they just were never recorded within your memory. Um, and the, these memories tend to be uh, of spatial or declarative uh, types of memories. Now, spatial memory is, of course, how things fit within a given space. Declarative are the type of memories where you can actually talk about it. You could express what you were thinking, such as, you know, when I was young, I had to walk to school uphill both ways and five feet of snow. That would be a declarative memory. It's Sounds also, very spatial. It'd also be a lie. <laughs> uh, and then the amygdala plays a role in encoding emotionally stressful memories. And then uh, anything that's procedural, which is learning a basic physical task or a set of steps, is uh, probably governed by basal ganglia and the cerebellum. Is that motor memory? Uh, not just motor memory. Uh, let's say that uh, let's say that Joe, you are are traveling from your home to the office. It's you learning that route to the point where you no longer are really thinking about the route anymore as you drive from your home to the office. So it's it's that kind of procedure. You know, now I take a right. Now I go two point three miles. Now I take a left. That kind of thing becomes so automatic that people think they can do it while they're composing a long text message. Yeah, that <laughs> right. don't do that. Uh, but anyway, that's that's the basic rundown of what we know about the human brain. And clearly, there's a lot we still don't know. But when you think about it that way, when you think that memories, which is really what we have to work on when we start talking about thinking and, and putting stuff together, uh, th- thinking about them being not just neurons, but connections makes it so much more complex that you can see to to be able to induce information in someone is going to be challenging because it's not like you could just target a specific neuron and say it is your job to remember mm-hmm. this fact in fact i'd have to imagine that most memories um and feel free to correct me but it seems like most would involve multiple types of memory formation at the same time like, if I'm having a memory later today about us recording this podcast... First of all, I'm sorry. Isn't it going to be composed of both... It's it's going to be images. I'm going to mm-hmm. remember auditory cues. I'm going to remember what, you know, the paper felt like in my hands. You might have an emotion all, about it. Yeah, all you different could remember parts how, of the brain. Right? How warm it is in this studio. Yeah, I could remember my simmering resentment of our... Fearless leader here. That's that's fair, Joe. I, I, I've earned that. Um, yeah, you know, uh, first of all, guys, we all really do like each other. <laughs> I don't want I don't want to I don't want that to actually be taken seriously. We do. Uh, we do. I would I would suspect uh, 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 I would suspect uh. that indeed it would be several different memories all combining into one and not just one uh, over like not just one mega memory that somehow engages all these things. But honestly, I don't know the answer. Like mm-hmm. I, I couldn't tell you for sure. I would suspect it, but again, that's because of what I've read already. Of course, then again, maybe one way to think about it is that that a full experiential memory is maybe something kind of like a web page 
where you have like images and you have text and you mm-hmm. might have music playing and, and it's all different types of data, but it comes together for one. Well, and it could be very well, it could very well be when you remember something that you're leaving certain details out entirely, mm-hmm. which would again kind of lead you to that thought of these are separate pieces to a puzzle, but you don't necessarily need the full puzzle. Okay. So what would it take to use technology to make knowledge in the brain like well, is is it really possible and and is there a role for technology to play in the future of education uh, obviously i would ar- always argue that technology definitely has a role in uh, in education i don't i am not one of those people who thinks that educa- that technology uh, replaces the need for teachers uh, I'm the son of two teachers. I value teachers. I value uh, librarians very highly. I think that they are incredibly important in the role of education. Uh, I think that technology can make their jobs easier if it is used properly. And that's a big if because just throwing technology at the problem is no guarantee that you're going to uh, going to actually help out. Oh, right, right. Or, or maybe maybe not easier, but maybe um, just different. More sure. more enriched, but different. Well, one example I think we can look at right now of how technology is doing something in education that we normally can't do is stuff like personalized learning, adaptive tutor software. All right. Where, so imagine you have something like uh, students or, you know, elementary school students are trying to learn math. All right. Now, they might have a really good math teacher, and I don't think that, I can see any way that technology could on the whole replace that teacher, but I can see it providing a really important individual attention that one teacher can't give a whole room of students. Right. So So, you're saying like you've got 25 students and those 25 students all learn in slightly different ways. mm -hmm. And, uh, and the teacher's approach might work really well for the majority of the class, but there might be other members of the class who are, it's not that they're not bright or not that they're not willing to learn, but they but just they might don't. absorb information better when they read it versus or if they're watching a video about it or mm. if they're um, listening to something about it rather than right. whatever you, the teacher. Do you guys happen and to the, and there's the simple like human power issue, like the, the teacher does not have enough time to spend individually with each student to working check and make sure that they're problem. getting every bit of it right yeah, i mean if you and have if you have one hour for math class and you have 25 students then you know how do, how would you divide that up so that you would be the most effective teacher yeah so imagine you have a program that uh that watches the student solve the problem like the student has a tablet or something and they're working out the problem on the tablet this software is smart and it follows their progress so it can see what kind of mistakes they're making consistently mm-hmm. and it can focus attention so like the teacher can even get feedback saying like okay what you know little Johnny's having trouble with is he's forgetting to carry the one when he does addition with multiple places or something like that I resent mm-hmm. that I actually I actually <laughs> um, had more problem uh, uh, remembering positive and negative signs that's actually true well, I mean, and it could probably figure that out too, right? In a way that, um, that 
a teacher who has lots of students to deal with just probably wouldn't have time. Right. And then the software, based on what it learns about the student, would give the student different problems or or focus its information in a different way in the future. Exactly. Yeah, it could adapt to what the student is learning and and adjust expectations accordingly. Which is a, a, a great idea. And of course, we've seen different approaches to trying to to cater to different learning styles, you know. Uh, for example, do you guys happen to have a preference of how you learn stuff? Reading, reading stuff. Mm. I know, text. Like reading. I, I'm definitely in the minority. I'm not very visual. I'm very auditory. So oh, a lot wow. of times I understand something a lot better if I hear somebody explain it to me than if I were to read the exact same words. Interesting. Yeah. I'm very visual myself. So we've kind of got an interesting uh, mix here. Um, yeah, and and so the idea would be that this software would start to pick up on which learning methods seem to work the best with that particular student and and be able to concentrate more on catering to that, knowing that these kind of learning uh, approaches aren't always exactly the same across every subject or even across uh, every single day. So ideally, the the best kind of software would be dynamic in that it could very in very subtle ways pick up on changes that the student is uh, going through when they're learning and being able to to uh, anticipate them and cater to those as well right because you might learn one concept really easily one way but you might need a different slight different combination of ways for another concept and so in a way you're talking about an artificially intelligent uh proactive learning tool which is still sort of science fictiony i mean we don't ha- we haven't reached that level of sophistication with artificial intelligence but it's within the realm of plausibility oh right because we certainly have this kind of tutoring software n- not exactly what jonathan was just talking about but we do have adaptive tutoring software right now mm-hmm. yeah out in the real world and yeah. uh it'll be interesting I-, I think it's early it's still early enough days where it's hard to get a real uh, grip on how effective it is. It's one of those things where I, I've definitely seen some conflicting stuff about, you know, is there a measurable difference? Does it really uh, help a student that much more than it would just going to class and paying attention to a teacher? But um, but then two things. One, again, it's very early on in the technology, so we haven't had a lot of time to really examine it at work. And two, being early on in the technology means it's not as sophisticated as it may one day be. So that's something to keep in mind. It's, I think it's a promising uh, approach to help supplement a student's education, thinking, you know, again, the teacher's really important here. And then this would be a great tool to help individualize where the teacher doesn't just doesn't have time. Right, right. Yeah. And allow the teacher and, and also, I mean, even give the teacher that indication early on if a student is having problems so that the teacher can be proactive and work with the student and say, all right, I, I can tell that you're not that something's not clicking here. Can you let, let's talk about this and see if we can find a way where this makes sense to you. And furthermore, to help teachers uh, refine their educational style and and cater more to what works you know, in in the real world, in the real classroom, get that data back from the programs about where a student's attention is and what's really working for them and what's maybe not. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, we're, we're looking at this from a very idealized way. If we have any teachers out there listening, first of all, we love you. We do. Honestly. We do. Seriously. And we do really appreciate the incredible work you do, especially considering that, you know, some schools, it can be a real challenge. Uh, so, you know, 
it's definitely one of those things that we're thinking about as a future technology, not something <laughs> like not that teachers just aren't doing their jobs. Oh, Nothing right, could be further right, from the truth. Absolutely not. No. Um, so I thought we should maybe move on to talk about what other possibilities technology could hold for the inception of knowledge and the uh, the, the technological supplementation. Supplementation? Sure. sure. I'm just yeah, that's checking. a word. I was just looking to make sure my top is still spinning, and it is. Go on. Okay. <laughs> of of knowledge and training, and I found this fascinating study about something called uh, decoded neurofeedback. Say what? Decoded neurofeedback. So neurofeedback is um, where data gathered about a person's brain is displayed back to the person in a certain way so the person can adapt and in, in some way control brain activity. All right. Um, the uh, w- What I'm referring to actually is a study that is from 2011. Um, it was published in Science and it's called Perceptual Learning Incepted. By decoded fMRI neurofeedback without stimulus presentation. Now, if you read about this study in lots of popular science uh, blogs, blogs, places like that, a lot of what the they they touted it as like you know this is the matrix, right? This is where we're beaming information directly into someone's brain, and they don't have to have any connection to it yeah. whatsoever, and then they're experts in it. Well, no, it's not what it's not that, but it Shucks. is really cool. Okay, okay. It's not beaming information into your brain, but it does represent a step in the direction of something kind of like automatic learning, mm-hmm. like what, you know, uh, mm-hmm. so that you can learn and practice a skill through through subtle or automatic means. Oh, um, okay. And you're squinting. I just want to know more. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying to work this out in my brain, but I need you to explain it to me. Okay. Well, it started... Uh, the study started as part of this debate about um, the adult plasticity of the human brain. Sure. What what is that? What would that mean? Adult plasticity. Well, there's there's been a controversy about how certain regions of the brain can change past a certain age. Right. And for a long time, there was a belief that the visual cortex of the brain, after a certain age, say maybe like a year old or something like that, just couldn't change much. It was not very plastic. So this is similar to that idea that it's very easy for a child to learn another language, but it gets increasingly difficult for adults to do that. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Um, okay, so you've got that going on. And these people uh, in this study decided to test, well, maybe we can cause changes in early visual areas of the brain. The early visual area is part of the visual cortex, and it controls... Uh, different visual processes in the brain. So one thing that people use to test this is what's called as vi- visual perceptual learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means like learning how to do a visual task better um, by repetition. So let's say you want to uh, be able to look at um, something in a room at a fixed position mm-hmm. and then look away and then look back. That's the example I read. Mm-hmm. Um, and be able to immediately move your eyes to where that object should Honed be. Hone in on it. Sure. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so th- that was the one example I read. But, yeah, it, it's stuff like that. Um, okay. So the study went like this. They took some people and they put them in an fMRI machine. Okay. 
And they had them look at a visual pattern, which was uh, it was a sort of a circle with a series of diagonal lines okay. at different degrees of orientation. Mm-hmm. And all they did was they had the people lay in the fMRI and it scanned the uh, fMRI, of course, scans the blood flow in your brain in right. real time so right. it can map brain activity. Mm-hmm. And they scanned fMRI while people looked at these visual patterns. And then they took the people out of the machines and sent them home. Okay. Then they turned that data from the fMRI into uh, a picture of brain activity. They said, okay, this is what it looks like when the brain is looking at these diagonal lines. Okay. All right. They brought the people back to the lab. They didn't show them anything else. They said, here's a disk on a screen back in the fMRI machine, of course. Look at this disk and make it get bigger. In fact, I want to find the exact words. It's funny. The quote in here is, uh, they told them to, quote, somehow regulate activity in the posterior part of the brain to make the solid green disc uh, that was presented six seconds later as large as possible. Yeah. Hmm. That's... How would you do that? <laughs> so imagine you're sitting there staring at a computer screen and they're telling you to look at something on the screen and make it bigger. Huh. Uh, well, you have sounded, this is starting to sound like that scene in Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, a couple of wavy yeah. lines. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the people had no idea how to do this. Well, it turned out there was a secret way of doing it. And the secret way was for them to reproduce the patterns in the early visual area of the brain that had existed when they were looking at the diagonal lines the oh. day earlier. But they had no knowledge of this. Um, and they were given incentives. They were given a monetary incentive to is the bigger you can make the disc, the more, the more we'll, we'll pay, pay you. you. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> and it turned out over time training with this uh, fMRI neurofeedback, people got better at making the disc bigger. So they were essentially remembering the the they pattern? were they were learning something without knowing they were learning it. Interesting. Interesting. And the neurofeedback was teaching them. To enlarge the disc by having a thought that they didn't realize was connected to the enlarging of the disc. Huh. And so one thing, uh, there was a good write-up of what happened in this experiment in Discover Magazine. And one thing that pointed out was that um, so all that happened here was some diagonal lines. That was the cue. Mm-hmm. That was what generated the brain patterns that would enlarge the disc. Mm-hmm. But you could perform this same type of experiment with something that was a lot more meaningful than diagonal lines. Say, what if the brain pattern you were looking for was associated with a task that required practice in order to, like, say, learning Kung Fu mm-hmm. in the Matrix? And you could induce mental training just by having somebody play this game with it's enlarging the disc. sort of similar to wax on, wax off. You yeah. don't know what you're doing, but you're actually learning a skill. Yeah, right. Instead of right. teaching muscle memory, you're teaching memory memory. Right. Yeah. Interesting. So the the question here I have, and obviously this is this is very preliminary, and it's not anything close to the Matrix style yet. Uh, and that's you know we don't even know that we'll ever get to a point where the Matrix style will ever be at all realistic. No. But um, one other discussion I wanted to have was that the, this idea of – this is something I think that that sometimes administrators and politicians kind of fall into the trap. Uh, they think about technology being the answer automatically 
mm-hmm. they don't think about the actual application of that te- technology. This is why I think teachers and librarians are indispensable, really, because uh, if you just throw assets at students, that doesn't necessarily mean that they'll be meaningful or useful at all. So the example I gave was, let's say that we've even reached the point where we can just download information. Yeah, we can somehow impart information instantly from one source into your brain. Mm -hmm. So does that mean that you would actually, quote unquote, know stuff? Or would it just mean that you have access to information? Now, I, I, in, at least, I mean, of course, without without this reality being around us, we can't say for sure because we can't actually test it. But I would suspect it would be very similar to having access to the Internet, you know, on a computer or on a smartphone that uh, I can look up the answer to any given question. But it doesn't mean that I know that answer. Uh, right. Or, you know, or being able to the difference between being able to um, perform an intricate Kung Fu routine uh, versus being able to say, well, in order to do that, you combine this move with this move and this is what those moves look like. Yeah. Yeah, Well, that's part of the the first part of this is that I think knowledge is more complex than we give it credit for. Yeah. Uh, And the example I was thinking about was um, so imagine you are in the Matrix world. okay, And you can just beam data directly into your brain. You could say download a book into your brain. Gotcha. Say you download a Russian to English dictionary. You're an English speaker. Duh. Do you now speak Russian? Nazdrovia. <laughs> I would say, <laughs> now, I think a simplistic understanding would say like, oh, yeah, okay, you can just download Russian to English dictionary. Bam, I know Russian. But I don't think it's that simple because I, I think to have fluency in Russian, there's also part of the the brain that needs to have the experience of speaking it, not just to know what all the words mean. Oh, right, right. right. Well, there's there, there's an element of knowing what the words mean. There's an element of knowing the syntax, the, the the grammar, the the structure of how to put those words into use. And then there's a yeah, you know, is is there another dimension to it? Is there an actual practicable thing that no. we could digitally reproduce or or not? I mean, and you know, we, we were talking about it a little bit earlier and. I think that it's probably similar to the difference between um, taking a course in college. Like, for example, I took a couple semesters of Japanese. And um, so I, I, you know, learned the alphabets. I learned a bunch of vocabulary. I technically learned the syntax. If you asked me to speak anything, I, I, I the only thing I've retained from it is how to apologize for my terrible Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> what does that sound like? Gobanna,私の悩みは得てですよ. Arigato. All right, so... Uh... <laughs> Don't touch my mustache. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, the the point being that that knowledge is very complex, and then maybe if we ever do reach that point, we will be able to actually create those neural pathways that that complex series of pathways that would allow us to not just know something, but to understand it, to comprehend it, and to be able to associate different ideas together. That's one of the amazing things I think. There, that we can say about the human brain is the fact that we can associate things that were not associated before and come up with new ideas and new information and innovation, things that didn't exist until we thought them up. And that, you know, we can't create matter or energy. We can't destroy it either. But we can create ideas, which is 
kind of magical in a way. And I say magical <laughs> only because we don't it's, understand. It's a form the of full... science significantly advanced enough that it seems like magic. Yeah, it's just yeah. biological science, not technology in this case. But it really is kind of amazing when you think about it. And uh, and so whether we'll ever be able to achieve the same thing technologically is another question. I think that if it is something we can do, it's pretty far off into the future because uh, we don't understand enough about ourselves to be able to leverage it, even if the technology is sophisticated enough to do it. Uh, although that being said, there are those who argue that if we ever reach a point where we can uh, completely simulate a, a brain on uh, on a meaningful scale at a meaningful time frame. It doesn't matter if we don't understand everything yet, because that thing may very well gain its own consciousness and self awareness. And the fact that we don't understand everything that's going on in our own heads doesn't mean that we won't be able to create it in some other form, which is an interesting point. But I think artificial intelligence is something we can save for another show. Well, what about it? Do you have anything else you want to add before we sign off? That's about all I got. The overwhelming response from Joe <laughs> as he just stares at me with his dead eyes tells me that it's time to conclude the episode. I was telepathically telling you that. Oh, got <laughs> it. Got it. See, that's the problem is that I just... I was beaming the knowledge into your brain. See, the problem is outside the Matrix, someone was moving a lead shield between us. Yeah. And then it just <laughs> bounced right off. Guys, thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions for future shows, please get in touch with us. Our uh, email address, that's the word I was looking for, is fwthinking at discovery.com or go to fwthinking.com. That's where we have all the blogs, the podcasts, we've got the videos, and we have links to our social media so you can get in touch with us there. And until then, we say sayonara. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. This is it. We've got an Amex Platinum Pro on our hands, ladies and gentlemen. We haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the Centurion Lounge. (sighs) Is he connecting to complimentary Wi-Fi? Oh, my! Look at that! He is... And you will not believe where he's going next. The Amex dedicated card member entrance for the win. Unbelievable. When you get travel perks with Amex Platinum, you're part of the action. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results, like more time in range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com.